our Bibles. Let's turn to Genesis. We're going to finish up the end of chapter um, 29 and then get quite a bit into chapter 30 this morning. And those of you who are able, if you'd stand with me, we're going to actually read the last few verses of chapter 29. And then we're going to pray. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And when she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son, this son also, and she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do come this morning, Lord, uh, as your people, and Lord, some come this morning just rejoicing, Lord. They're on the mountaintops, and life has been good this week, and Lord, they see your kindness to them. Lord, others come, and Lord, they're weeping. Lord, life's been difficult this week. Life's been hard. And Lord, others, Lord, they... We come this morning and we're just weary pilgrims, Lord, worn out from the week. And, and Lord, we're thankful that, Lord, however we come this morning, Lord, that you meet your people and you meet our needs. Lord, we come this morning to the throne of grace, Lord, where we, Lord, might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we come this morning to be reminded, Lord, that one day, Lord, all the evil and the pain, Lord, that we endure in this fallen world, Lord, that Christ will crush and put away, and every tear will be wiped away, Lord, as we stand in your presence, Lord. Lord, remind us of the hope that we have in you this morning, we pray. Encourage and comfort and bless your people, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You all can be seated. So in this chapter, Rachel and Leah, as you know, sisters. Leah's the older one, Rachel's the younger. And they're in this power struggle for the attention and the affection of their shared husband, Jacob. And the weapons that they employ in this struggle in this battle are not conventional weapons at all. There are no assault rifles in this, no RPGs. The weapons are babies. Who can produce the most? And the stakes of this war are high. The winner, the one who secured Jacob's affection, they stood to gain security and prestige for herself as the bearer of his sons. And the loser in a culture where a woman's value was measured by the number of her sons, 
she seemed to be, the, the loser seemed to be doomed to a worthless existence on the sidelines of life. And this ancient fact of life was all the more pronounced in the case of Rachel and Leah because their spouse was no ordinary family man. Jacob was the bearer of the Abrahamic blessing, the Abrahamic covenant. It had been passed on to his father Isaac and and now to him, and he'll pass it on later at the end of the book of Genesis. And so with that ancient promise came the future seed of the, the one who would crush the serpent's head all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that God had promised Adam and Eve in the garden. One who would come to rescue them from the misery that they had plunged mankind into. So which one of these dueling sisters would be the mother of the Messiah? That's really at stake here. Will the blessing pass on through the line of the younger, Rachel, like God did with Jacob? Or this time, will God choose the older sister because she was unloved and disadvantaged? And so there's much at stake in this conflict between these two sisters. You know, and the sad part about it is is that Rachel... Neither Rachel nor Leah here seem to be motivated by any great spiritual concern. Uh, they, they have no desire to glorify God. It seems that God's not really even on their mind. He's almost an afterthought in this chapter. They seem to have lost eternal perspective as they get caught up just in the struggles of daily life. And you and I can relate well to that, don't we? We lose perspective on eternity as we get caught up in the minutia of just daily life. And I don't mean to say that it's just, it's insignificant. Oh, it's very significant, the things that we deal with. But they have a tendency to pull us away and to distract us from the bigger picture of eternity. And so too with Rachel and Leah. Well, as the passage opens... We see that God's favor is first shown to Leah. Why? Well, it tells us. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And that word there, unloved, uh, other translations say, when God saw that Leah was hated or that she was despised. Those Those are good words that describe her condition. She was unloved and she was hated. She was despised by Jacob. So it's not just a description of how Jacob felt about Leah, but it's also in the Hebrew, it has kind of legal connotations to it that highlighted the insecurity of Leah's position in Jacob's household. In other words, she was in danger of not just as a woman, she didn't have his attention and his affection and his approval, but she was in danger of being cast off, being mistreated or worse yet, divorced by Jacob. And, and, and the precarious position that she was in was really compounded further by the fact that, you know, that her dad had, uh, you know, tricked Jacob into marrying her. That didn't make her very loved. She was, in, she was complicit in the deception, and you can imagine that Jacob held that against her. And the fact that we've, been already, we've already been told that she's less attractive 
than Rachel. So all those things work together to compound the situation and make her precarious position even worse than we might imagine. But I want you to notice that God has a special concern here. God saw that Leah was unloved. And he has a special concern for for those whose lives are particularly difficult. If, If you're here this morning, your life is particularly difficult today. Know this, that God has a special concern for you, just as he did. He he saw Leah in the midst of her pain and her difficult situation. And, And know this, that he has a special concern for people who are in particularly difficult situations, whether or not you contribute to your situation. Leah contributed to the mess that she was in, right? And yet God is still concerned about her. He doesn't just say, hey, well, you made your bed, lie in it, deal with it, suck it up. But he looks at her, yeah, she contributed to it. But he has a special concern for her. And so the Lord sees the painful consequences of Leah's actions, and he's concerned for her. And as a result of the Lord's concern, notice what it says in the first part of verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and called his name Reuben. This is the firstborn of the 12 tribes of Israel. And listen, th- this is good news for those of us whose lives are a mess, a wreck. You know, I think we're often tempted to think of God as some type of a, a cosmic traffic cop, right? You know, this, uh, you know, this kind of a paranoid paralyzing fear that, that you have, you know, when we're doing something wrong and, and, and you know, you're kind of looking over your shoulder when you're in your car, maybe going too fast or, or whatever, or driving aggressively like I do on occasion. Or I had a guy the other night that was driving through a parking lot and he kicked, he kicked my truck. You can, you can talk to Shannon for the rest of the story on that one, but I may have provoked him just a little bit. He, he, was, he was walking through the Target parking lot, and he was walking right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm over here trying to stay away, from, and he walked right in front of me. And as I got close to and I kept, I was still moving too, by the way. <laughs> and as I got close to him, I did tap my horn. I didn't go, Arr! I just tapped it a little. You know, he's on his phone. He's sitting there walking with his phone. He didn't have, he was oblivious. To, and so it jolted him. He was a young man in his early 20s. And so then he, he diverted from the front of my vehicle and walked down the side. When he got to the end of it, kicked it. Um, you don't know when it, when it happened after that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, there was sin involved on my part that I had to deal with. But uh, And I have no idea what that has to do with what I'm talking about here. It really doesn't have anything. I think I, think I just felt the need to confess that this morning. Um, but, you know, we're often tempted to think of God as this, as this cosmic traffic cop, you know, where we're just this paralyzing, paranoid fear that, that, that you know, God is going to come down on us with the full weight of the law. And, and, and listen, we, we rightly deserve to have the book thrown at us, don't we? But, but yet... God's not like that. God responds to us with with grace and with mercy. 
Leah didn't deserve that, did she? She deserved to have the book thrown at her for her part in this big mess that's, that's been created here. The deception of Jacob. But yet God sees her in her need. Sees that she's unloved. And he has special care and concern for that. And even when our painful situation is the clear and direct result of our sin, just like with Leah, God still cares for us. And maybe you're in that situation right now where you're just kind of reaping what you've sown. You need to know God's not waiting with a hammer to pound you, but that God loves you. Even, even when we're apart from Christ, even when we're not even yet saved, it doesn't say that God's hammer leads us to repentance. What does the Scriptures teach us? It's His goodness and His kindness, right? It's His mercy and His grace toward us that we don't get what we deserve, that we begin to see what a good God He is in the midst of, I really deserve the book to have the book thrown at me. And this is good news to us, isn't it? Not only is it good news to us, but I think it challenges our thinking toward others. You see, because though, though we're eager to receive God's grace, aren't we? We're not always so quick to pass it on. You, you remember the, uh, the parable of the unjust servant in Matthew chapter 18 there in verses 21 through 35? And you remember the master comes to settle his accounts? And he comes to this one, one of his servants who owes him 10,000 talents, right? I mean, it's, it, it, is a, it is a massive debt that he has accumulated toward his master. And here, there is no way, I mean, it is so massive that if you were to calculate that, it would take him like 2,000 lifetimes to repay that debt. In other words, it's impossible for him to repay the debt. That's the point. And so what does the servant do? He begs. He begs his master for mercy, doesn't he? And what does the master do? The master forgives him. All of his debt, this massive debt that he had incurred, and he forgives him. But then what does the, the, this, this servant who has received this amazing grace and mercy from his master, what does he go do? He finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. That's like three, four months worth of wages. If you make $60,000, it's like 20,000 bucks. That's how much the debt was. So it was payable. But he goes and he grabs him by the neck, puts his hands around his throat and demands that he be repaid now. And then he throws him into prison, right? And that challenges us. You see, because we are quick. We're eager. We're eager to receive mercy, to receive grace, but we're not always quick to pass it on. What about those in our life who have sinned against us? The natural response is what the unmerciful servant did, is to go grab them by the throat. And man, just shake it out of them, to give them what they deserve. But the unnatural, the supernatural, the Christ-like response, the, 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 you know, to, to be the right image bearer here, to bear the image of Christ, is to not give them 
what we want, but to give them what they don't deserve, which is grace and mercy. That's what God did to Leah. That's what God does with us. And if we are to rightly bear his image, that's how we treat others. Well, with the birth of her first son, Leah felt that she had gained important ground in this battle with her sister for Jacob's affection and approval. And so it says there at the end of verse 32, the Lord has surely, after she gets pregnant, she has the child, she names him Reuben, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction now, therefore my husband will love me. And then she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And so the second son is born. You know, and as you read those words, can't you hear her pain? I've got this kid. Now, therefore, Jacob will love me, right? Verse 34, now this time my husband will become attached to me because now I've got a second one. I'm going to be able to hold on to the guy now. And you can just, you can just see what miserable condition she was living in in that marriage and the pain. But we've got to be careful here because in our sympathy for Leah, we need to be careful that we don't miss what the words reveal about Leah's, you know, the idolatry that, that gripped Leah's heart here. Leah regarded her husband's affection and approval as essential to having a meaningful life. Without Jacob, she felt like her life was over. There, there was no reason to live. And to her... God was merely a means to winning what was really important to her, which is Jacob's affection and approval. God was a secondary. He was, you know, he was not the essential component here that she was seeking. What she really wanted, what she really longed for was a meaningful life that was found in Jacob's approval and his affection. Without that, life wasn't worth living. That's what we call idolatry. It's someone or something other than God, I'm sorry, other than the living God, is occupying that God-shaped space at the core of our being. You see, we were made to worship, and we were made to worship specifically God. But if we don't worship God, we will worship something. And even if we do worship God, there's always a battle for our heart because as Calvin said, you know, the heart, it just manufactures, it just pumps out idols. And so whatever we must have instead of or in addition to the God of the Bible, if life is to have meaning, that is our idol. Now, let me ask you this. Was what Leah desired, was it wrong? I mean, what does she desire? She desired her husband's affection and approval. Is that a wrong desire? No, it's not a wrong desire at all, is it? That's a good desire. But good desires become bad desires 
when we must have them. We have to have them to be satisfied or to find worth or to have a meaningful life. So for Leah, it was the the desire for a husband who really loved her. That was her idol. That may not be your idol, but I can guarantee everyone that's in this room, we have idols. Whether we're aware of them or not, we have them. For you, it may be good health. For life to have any meaning whatsoever, I have got to have good health. And if I don't have that, then life's not worth living. Or maybe it's a better relationship with your spouse. Or maybe a better relationship with your, with your kids or, or, or siblings between each other. Or maybe your idol is excellent grades. I, I've got to have them. If I don't get excellent grades, then my life has no meaning to it. Or maybe it's a new job. If I can't get that new job, or if I can't run, climb up one more rung of the ladder at work, Life has no meaning to it. I have to have this or my life is empty. It has no purpose, no meaning. We all have them. I'm aware of at least a couple in my life, and I've shared at least one of them with you. Comfort. I want comfort. I want a problem-free, stress-free life, right? That's maybe for many of you. I know it is for me. I'm very aware of that. And when I don't have that, sometimes I think, you know what? Life has no meaning, no purpose. It's just not worth living. Another one I think I've, I'm, I've become aware of is just success in my work. I want success in my work. I want my ministry, my profession to be fruitful. I'm not talking about big numbers of people, but I want it to be effective. I want to see people become disciples of Jesus Christ. And and that's a good desire, but it can become become bad when it becomes your sole focus. And when that's not happening at different seasons in your life or ministry, then you can begin to say, well, it's just not worth it, right? So you've lost focus. I've lost focus. And the problem is that our idols, they leave us frustratingly unsatisfied. You remember the woman at the well? Jesus said, you keep drinking this water, what's going to happen? You're going to thirst again, right? They don't satisfy. These relationships that you're seeking after, she's talking to the, they, they just won't. They're going to leave you high and dry. So our idols leave us frustratingly unsatisfied. Notice verse 34, and she conceived again her third child, and she bore a son. Now this time, my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. See, she thought that having these kids was going to satisfy. It was going to give her affection and approval from her husband. But you see, with each one, she's still unfulfilled. She's still unsatisfied. And, the, and here's the reality. The, the, the pain of unsatisfied idolatry can be a good thing because it often serves as a messenger of God to reveal the hidden recesses of our hearts. 
You see, as long as we get what we want, as long as our idols are smiling on us and giving us everything that we want, it's so easy to be oblivious to the power that that idol has gained over our lives. Think about this. As long as we're comfortable, uh, you know, financially, we don't see how much we've, we've come to rely on money as a means of being satisfied, content, and happy in this life. As long as we're beautiful, attractive people, right? We don't see how important that that's become to our sense of happiness and self-worth. But then as life happens, age comes on us, gravity takes over, you see, that idol is no longer smiling on us, is it? And now we're frustratingly unsatisfied. And that can be a good thing because it exposes what's going on in our heart. When our idol fails us and it frustrates us, that that can be a blessing. Notice what verse 35 says, and she conceived again, this is her fourth one, bore a son, and she said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she stopped bearing. And for the moment, it looks as though Leah's eyes have turned from her husband, and they've turned to the Lord, right? No longer seeming to long after and desire after the affection and approval of of Jacob for her happiness. But the Lord is the object of her affections now. Sadly, it doesn't last with Leah. And what's true about Leah is true about you and me. The Lord exposes those idols in our lives, and then we begin to look to the Lord, and we find happiness and meaning and meaning and purpose in Him. And then it's not before, it's not long after that that the Lord exposes another idol in us, right? That we're running after to find happiness in. We're just like Leah. Well, Rachel now enters the baby wars and she's driven by her own insecurity and idolatry. Notice it says in verse one there that now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, remember she was barren there in verse 31. Rachel envied her sister And she goes to Jacob and she says to him, give me children or else I die. I wouldn't have been Jacob in that conversation. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) So she's fearful. She's fearful that Leah's fruitfulness now, she's had four kids, will succeed in stealing stealing away Jacob's affections. And so she goes to Jacob and she takes it out on him and she blames him for the painful predicament that she's in that she doesn't have any children. And she's worried that because she doesn't have any children, that Jacob is going to, she's going to lose Jacob's affection. And so she dumps her painful predicament on on Jacob rather than casting her cares upon the Lord. Notice that the Lord is nowhere mentioned in this. And how did her loving husband Jacob respond? Jacob's anger, verse 2, was aroused against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So instead of sympathizing with his wife, with Rachel, 
and, and helping her to bring her concerns to the only one who could help her. Jacob gets angry with Rachel. And in his anger, he says, hey, don't blame me. I'm not the problem here. It's God. He's the one who opens the womb. Your problem is his problem, not my problem. Listen, can I say this to us as men, as those of in here, you in here are husbands? Our, our wives need us to absorb the pain, the pain that they're experiencing at times. Uh, it's not helpful when we react to it like Jacob did, and we do that all too often. We, we take it so personally. It's also not helpful, listen, in the midst of their pain that they're maybe dumping on you and I. Our tendency is to preach to them. They don't need us to pull out our little portable podium, our portable pulpit, and to begin to you know, launch into you know, the Sermon on the Mount with them. What they need is they need understanding husbands who will acknowledge their hurts. And simply do this and simply lead them to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're, you're not the solution. I'm not the solution to my wife's pain. The Lord is the solution. And so we can learn from Jacob in this situation of what not to do. Well, in her desperation to win Jacob's affection, Rachel now takes up some pretty desperate measures. Notice what it says in verses 3 through 8. So she said to Jacob, here is my maid. I mean, you can, you can just, just the anger and the pain, the frustration is just, is just oozing out of her. Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her. You remember when Rachel said this to, I'm sorry, when Sarah said this to Abraham about Hagar? It was still just as wrong, but there was a tenderness in her voice. She says, please go into my maid. But Rachel here, she is tore up from the floor up, okay? She's hurting. And in her anger, go into my maid servant, my maid Bilhah. She will bear a child on my knees. In other words, the child that she bears will be my child. I will raise that child as my own on my knees that I also may have children by her. Remember, give me children or I die. Go into her. And she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son, and then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. Well, Leah, who for a short time seemed to have her idolatry cured, it doesn't last, and now she mounts a counterattack, if you will, by adopting the very same strategy that her sister uses, which is employing concubines. So Leah, verse 9, saw that she had stopped bearing, and she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. 
And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, I am happy, for the, uh, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. And just when you think that things can't go any lower, we come to the famous Mandrake episode. You say, what's the Mandrake episode? Well, we're going to read about it. Verse 14, Reuben, you remember that's the oldest son of Leah. He went into the days of the wheat harvest, which is the summer, and he found Mandrakes in the field, and he brought them to his mother Leah. Now, Mandrakes are these perennial Mediterranean plant. They, in the wintertime, they bear this kind of a bluish flower. Uh, and in the summertime, um, they have this kind of a yellowish uh, plum-sized fruit on them. Um, now, you may be, some of you younger people may be familiar with mandrakes from Harry Potter, right? You remember the mandrakes? And, and, and if you and they would teach them, you know, at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And, and if your parents are offended I'm talking about this, I'll, I'll get an email, I'm sure. Okay. But I, I can handle that. And if you didn't want your kids to watch it, to have them cover their ears now as I talk about the Mandrake episode. But you remember that uh, they were taught they had to put, uh, you know, earmuffs basically on, you know, to, to suppress the noises so that when they went out and they plucked the Mandrakes up, you know, by the roots that they would scream so loudly that if you didn't have hearing protection on, you would be killed. Remember that? And what did they use the mandrakes for? They were used to, to make a potion that, uh, uh, that would cure you if you had a spell cast on you and you were petrified. Only the roots of the mandrake ground up could cure that, you know, that uh, petrification, I guess is the word for that. So that's the Harry Potter version. And, and the real version is probably just as mythological as this, in the sense that in ancient times, mandrakes were, were famed for arousing sexual desire. So if you were to take a little bit of the mandrake and, and uh, grind it up and put it in your food or drink it or whatever they did with it, it's even in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 13, it's kind of a love potion, if you will. Uh, in the ancient world, they, they called mandrakes love apples. They were this love potion, kind of an aphrodisiac and supposed fertility drug. Very mythological, nothing. Matter of fact, they are tremendously poisonous. They, are, they will in, induce hallucinogenic effects on you, and if too much is taken, they will kill you. Don't eat mandrakes. Okay, that's one message here today. I don't care what the Harry Potter, put your earmuffs on and don't eat them. Don't play with them, don't touch them. So, Reuben here knows that his mom, he's got much to gain by his mom continuing to be fertile, by continuing to have children. He's the firstborn. So if Leah gains Jacob's favor as the firstborn, the blessings and the birthright would naturally go to him, right? So he gains the estate. He gains the prestige from, you know, being the one to carry on the blessing and the birthright. 
So he wants mom to continue to be fertile so that Jacob will be satisfied with her and not Rachel. So he goes out and he picks the mandrakes, hoping that they will cause her to be fertile. And maybe even a little bit for Jacob to kind of arouse his desire to be with Leah. So he takes the plants home, but before long, when Rachel sees that he's brought some mandrakes to Leah's tent, she's over there, knock, knock, knock on Leah's tent. And notice what it says. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Leah speaking to Rachel. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Really, you want it all? This is my only hope here. I need this aphrodisiac, this fertility drug to be able to continue to produce. You want everything. Don't you want Jacob? You want it all. And Rachel said, listen, therefore, Jacob, he will lie with you tonight if you give me your son's mandrakes. So at this point, I mean, how, look, look how base, how, look how sad this whole thing's become. Jacob is, is nothing more than a commodity here to barter over. And, and, and here's the irony, you know, he's reaping what he's sown, isn't he? He bartered a bowl of stew for his brother's birthright, and now he's being traded for mandrakes. Listen, we do reap what we sow. And ironically, I mean, so, so then look, verse 16, then Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And I gave Rachel the mandrakes, you're mine, buddy. Get in the tent. Sit down and shut up. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore bore Jacob a fifth son. And ironically, isn't it ironic that the sister who gave away the love potion and the fertility drug is the one who becomes pregnant? That's because the Lord alone, not mandrakes, has the power to open the womb. And so Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given, this is verse 18, I've given my maid to to my husband. So she said, you know, God's God's blessed me because of this. I mean, just how easily the, the name of the Lord rolls off of her lips and our lips in the midst of our foolishness. So she called his name Issachar. And then Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. And now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, four of her own and two by her concubine. She called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And she'll come into factor in a really sad situation in a couple of chapters. Sadly, Leah's right back where she started, isn't she? right back in her original idolatrous starting point. Still 
longing for Jacob's affection and approval, for there to be meaning in her life and to feel a sense of worth. I like what Ian DeGood said in his commentary. I thought it was very helpful. He said, he said, even those idols that we think safely dead and buried have a way of coming back to haunt us over and over again. Like vampires, idols often seem to refuse to stay dead. They keep coming back. So too with Leah and with you and I. Well, what about Rachel as we wrap up? Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, my disgrace. And so she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Kind of prophetic there, if you will, because she will go on to have one more son. And what would his name be? Do you know? Benjamin. And she will die in childbirth as Benjamin is born. And so what Jacob couldn't do for Rachel, and what the mandrakes couldn't do, the Lord did. And here we see the Lord's compassion on her, having a son took away her reproach, her shame, her disgrace. And can I say this? No, no, no child that we have can take away our, our disgrace. There's only one son who can take away our disgrace, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he takes us and he plunges us in the fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins and he cleanses us of all of our sin. No Joseph can do that, but only Jesus Christ. And, and it seems that at Rachel at this point, she's at least beginning to think about God. And with the birth of Joseph, the baby wars come to an end. And on the surface of this chapter, you notice that it, it's, it seems to be that you know, everything, it's, it's human sin and rivalry are, are what's driving the action in this chapter. But behind the scenes, when you pull back the veil, and you get back past the, uh, you know, the human idolatry and the ugliness of our sin, behind the scenes, what's God been doing? He's been fulfilling his promises, hasn't he? The promises that he made to Jacob at Bethel. That I'm going to give you descendants, Jacob. Descendants more numerous than the sand by the sea. They're going to go to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Jacob, I'm going to give these things to you. And even through their sin, God achieved his purposes, didn't he? That he establishes the 12 tribes of Israel here in their infancy, if you will. And so what do we learn from that? That our sin, our failures, our idolatry cannot thwart the plans of God. And do you know this? That our sins and our failures and our idolatry, it cannot even separate us. Those of us who are his kids, they can't even separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
Our sins and our failures and our idolatries cannot even pull us from the grip of our Savior's hand. Because those whom the Father has given him, he loses none. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because his love is not dependent upon how you and I act. It is dependent upon his finished work on the cross and that alone. And that brings great assurance and great comfort to the believer in the midst of our idolatry, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failures, that my salvation is secure in him and not in myself. You know, the sorry tale here of Jacob's wilderness years there in Laban's land and domestic infighting between his wives, the, the sisters, you know, they, they really point us back to what's central in the life of Jacob. You know, if, if, if it can be said that Abraham was a man who exemplified faith, right? That's what Paul says about him. Abraham exemplified faith. Then, then Jacob is a man who exemplifies not faith. He exemplifies grace, God's grace toward him. In, in Jacob, we see God's love and his grace extended to this unlovely sinner. There's nothing about Jacob that, uh, that's endearing or uh, attractive. He, God makes these great promises to, to Jacob at Bethel. Not, not because of the kind of person that he was, but in spite of the person that he was. That's grace. The same kind of promises he makes to you and me in spite of who we are. Listen, J Jacob is no hero, okay? His family dynamics, they're not models for you and I to copy. The message of this story isn't learn to be a Leah or, you know, rejoice to be a Rachel. And we certainly shouldn't be asking ourselves on our little bracelet, what would Jacob do? No. Whatever you come up with, do the opposite. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, they're you and me. People just like you and me. People who easily let the Lord's name roll off of our lips. All the while we give our hearts and lives to the pursuit of other things that we think that will satisfy, that we think that will, will give us worth, that we think that will, that will give us meaning in life and happiness. And it's tragic. And yet, here's the grace in all this. Do, do you know that Jacob's name is, is on the roll of Hebrews, of 11, Hebrews 11 there, the Faith Hall of Fame chapter? As, as one of those individuals that God saved by grace through faith. Why? Why is his name on that role of Hebrews 11? To give us an example of one that we should exemplify and we should, we should be like? No. He's on there to remind us that, that our God specializes in rescuing losers, redeeming hopeless cases. And along the way, when God does that in his people, we're, we're, if you, you may not like this, but, but we are losers and we are hopeless cases. 
And the more you recognize that, the more you appreciate God's grace. And then when he rescues and redeems people like you and me, he works in this just like he does with Jacob, that along the way in our lives, he's going to do exactly what he promised to do. Jacob, I'm going to bless you with descendants in spite of you. Daryl, the work I began in you, I'm going to complete. I'm going to work and I'm going to will within you to do my pleasure. And he does that with his people. Well, let me give you a quick spoiler alert as we give my final thoughts on this chapter. The promise of Genesis 3.15 that God would send one who would rescue his people from their sin, who would crush the head of the serpent, will not come. We may think that, oh, Joseph, he's going to be the one. I mean, he's really, he becomes a great type of Christ, doesn't he? As a place where Jacob's family comes to, to be rescued from the famine. Great picture of redemption in Joseph. But listen, the promise is not going to come through Joseph. It's going to come through Leah's son, Judah. Judah is the one who fits into the line of the Messiah. But listen, if you're looking to Judah for hope, oh, as we read on, you're going to be sorely disappointed because, because Judah turns out to be one that is, he's just sad. <laughs> but it's to remind us of this, that our hope is not found in Judah, but in Jesus, the ultimate offspring of Jesus. You remember when the angel came to Joseph and he told him of, about Mary being pregnant, you know, his betrothed being pregnant. He says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Not Judah, but Jesus. And Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which a man is to be saved. Salvation is only found in him. And so all these people that fall into the line of the Messiah... They were failures. Why? Because they came from Adam. They're people like you and me. So that we would learn to not put our hope in men, but our hope, put our hope in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings hope to the hopeless. He's the one who brings rest to the weary. He even brings eternal life to those like Jacob and Leah and Rachel those who are hopelessly caught up and lost in their idolatries. Listen, church, we don't ever see Rachel and Leah fully delivered from their idols in this life. And throughout our lives here on this earth, I don't want you to think, I don't want to set you up for failure to think that, one day you're going to arrive at this state of perfection, this side of heaven, to where you never have any idolatries that you struggle with. Throughout our lives here on this earth, we will continue to wrestle with our cherished idols. Sometimes, sadly, we're going to find ourselves succumbing to them. Overtaken by them and pinned to the mat under the weight of them. The Lord may deliver us from some of them, 
He may expose others that we're presently ignorant of. But what you and I need to remember over and over again, that our ultimate hope is not in mastering our idolatries. It's not in mastering our flesh. It's not in subduing our... At the end of the day, my hope, your hope is not in whatever my struggle might be, whatever my idol might be, and me grabbing that thing around the neck and whatever it is and pin it to the mat until it taps out. You see, because then my hope is in what? My hope is in me, my efforts. And my efforts will not merit me favor with God. My hope. And I think that's why we continue in this life to wrestle with these things. To be reminded that our ultimate hope is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ. You see, because Christ is the only one who ever lived who didn't struggle with idolatry. He was never envious. He never got caught up in his appearance. Comfort wasn't his God. The cross dispels that, doesn't it? Financial security, foxes have holes, the birds of the air has nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Relationships, who's my mother? Who's my brother? He he didn't get caught up in that. You see, his only concern, his sole focus was what? His Father's will. That's all he cared about. And yet on the cross, Jesus was treated as the worst of idolaters, wasn't he? Condemned to death for all of our jealousies, all of our insecurities, all of our wrong desires, all of our self-centered hopes and dreams, everything that we thought, think, will, will bring us happiness and meaningless life. He was crucified for all of that, every one of our idols. And as a result of that, as we now trust him, as he's given us faith to believe, because of what he's done, we stand before him as his precious children, welcomed in to the family of God and ultimately welcomed in to the presence of God himself in heaven because of what he's done for us. Because we're just like Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. We don't deserve it. It's all by grace. Let's stand and go out with that. Father, thank you, Lord, for just reminding us yet, Lord, one more time, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that not of ourselves, Lord, not of works, lest we boast, Lord. It is the gift of God. And Lord, we don't want to be flipping about our sin. We don't want to be flipping about our idols. Lord, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it, Lord? But Lord, as John says, that Lord, we love you because you first loved us, Lord. It's because of your love for us, Lord, that causes us to, to delight in you, Lord, to want to be satisfied in you, to find fulfillment and happiness in you. Lord, continue to subdue our hearts, we pray. 
capture, Lord, every recess of it, we pray for, for your glory, Lord, for our good. Comfort and minister, Lord, to your people, to each of us, Lord, as we battle with these different idols, Lord, as we walk in this fallen world as weary pilgrims. Comfort, strength, and encourage, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.